evening by evening among the brookside rushes laura bowed her head to hear lizzie veiled her blushes crouching close together in the cooling weather with clasping eyes and cautioning lips with tingling cheeks and fingertips lie close laura said pricking up her golden head we must not look at goblin men we must not buy their fruits who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry thirsty roots come by called the goblins hobbling down the glen oh cried lizzie laura laura you should not peep at goblin men Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. This is the History Podcast with a Twist. In our first series, we asked a lot of surprising and fantastic historical questions like why were pies invented and do our dogs really love us and covered some amazing subjects like Stonehenge, coronations and knighthoods. If you didn't listen first time round, do check out those great episodes. Anyway, today I've got a Christmas present for you. I'm reading my favourite poem, Goblin Market, by Christina Rossetti and discussing the context and history with the fabulous Madeleine Callahan, who is Senior Lecturer in Romantic Literature at the University of Sheffield. My female students often end up crying, laughing, saying I had no idea that people wrote like that back then, but she did, and she let John know, didn't she? One of the things I love most about Christmas is the carols. This is the one I want to tell you about, In the Bleak Midwinter. Just listen to it for a moment. I'll read it slower than I normally would, so you'll see what I mean. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Isn't that a wonderful phrase, made moan? And then this bit, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. That's the sort of thing Ted Hughes used to write, isn't it? And then my favourite, favourite line from this verse Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. Isn't that audacious? And then, like, the setup for the rest of the story in the bleak midwinter long ago. And that was written by a woman who was round over 150 years ago. And I think she is incredibly modern and she wrote a poem that I just wanted to do the whole of I just was going to start that entire podcast saying this is Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti but you wouldn't let me would you Melissa Tony I wouldn't let you and that is because I want you to read the we all want you to read the poem but I want to hear a little bit about why you want to read the poem basically because I just think it's wonderful that's the, the the top reason. And I know like normally on on the radio, if you read a poem, it has to be for a particular reason. I just want to read it is really nice. But also because she was a very strong woman in a world which was very male dominated, arty world. And she just said some good things and and behaved in a, a really marvellous way. And you put me in touch with Maddie Callahan, and I started to be apologetic about Christina Rossetti. So we're going to hear from Madeline. Before we do, though, Tony, tell me when you first heard this poem. Do you remember when you first heard it? Yeah, I was coming home really late at night. I just lay on the floor. I was so knackered. I couldn't even sort of get past the hall. But I'd got my phone with me, and I put on Poetry Please, that lovely series goes on, out on Radio 4 on doesn't Radio it Radio 4 mm. that's right and the poem was being read and I had 
no idea what it was and I was just held and moved and captivated by it and and ever since then uh, it's been much further to the front of my brain than probably any poem ought to be. I want to introduce you to Maddie Callahan, Senior Lecturer in Romantic Literature at Sheffield Uni. Maddie, Christina Rossetti was, as far as I'm concerned, probably the most influential of what they called the pre-Raphaelites. Who was Raphael? What was before him? And why did the Raphaelites want to be like someone who lived before Raphael? That's a great question. I think Christina Rossetti was so important because she scores the big literary triumph, I suppose, for the pre-Raphaelites. Before that, they kind of are making a splash in the art world, but poetry, they'd not managed to crack that really. So the pre-Raphaelites were the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. Imagine this little male fraternity. And they get set up in about 1848. And together they have a secret society where they want to come back to what they feel are the fundamentals. So they're furious. They feel like art has become really academic and dry and boring. So they say, let's look at Raphael, this great painter from the Quattrocento or Renaissance in Italy. They want the vitality and the passion and the excitement back in art. So that's their passion and that's what they take forward into the Victorian period and beyond, I think. I know they were doing all sorts of different kinds of things, but even people who haven't heard of them will have seen their paintings, won't they? They're, they're probably the most looked at paintings in most museums, I think. All, all those women floating down rivers in, in diaphanous dresses, but it's all very kind of magical. It's like it's it, it's set in, I don't know, the time of King Arthur or something like that. You You want to be there, but you know that you could never break through the canvas and be allowed to live there yourself. I love that. Yeah, I think all of these kind of dreamy medieval women is such a big part of it. Sexuality and death and vitality, really. It is dreamy. And let's be completely honest, these women are sexy. We've got this kind of idea in their art. We see these virgins, we see Madonnas, but we also see these incredibly sensual women. And believe it or not, some of the critics of the time hated it. And one of them, John Buchanan, who was a poet, he referred to them as the fleshly school of art. And he hated them for their kind of sexiness, their eroticism. And he went crazy about looking at these artworks that seem to be so focused on that kind of beauty. But I think that's why we love them, right? Rossetti is quite an exotic sounding name. What's that all about? Ah, so their father was this fantastic Italian immigrant into this country. And he was an Italian professor at King's College London. So he was really significant for them because he worked on Dante, the great poet from the 14th century. So what we get there is this excitement about Italian culture, Italian artwork. And when they were at home, the kids spoke Italian with their father. But when they were out of the house, they were English. So you have this fantastic kind of mixture of cultures going on for them. And how many kids do they have? Four of them. So Christina is actually the baby of the family. She's got a big sister called Maria, and she's got a brother called William Michael Rossetti, and she's got, of course, Dante Gabriel Rossetti as another brother. 
as I understand it, she was very bright, very clever, you know, typical middle-class arty kid until she was about 12 and then something happened and her whole personality seems to have changed. That's so right. We think it's because her father had had a breakdown. He lost confidence in himself and completely crashed. It changed the family's lives. William had to go into the workplace. Maria had to go into the workplace. Dante said, absolutely not, and went off to art school. But Christina had to look after her dad. And at that point, everything is different. And she seems to become really quite introverted and shy and desperately afraid to be seen as somebody difficult or problematic. She may have been difficult and problematic, but the fellas seem to have liked her. <laughs> we know that she was involved with a guy called John Brett. Don't blame her, but John, we think, proposed, and she wrote this poem called No Thank You, John, which is absolutely brutal. Brutal! I, I've never heard it until you sent it to me. It's such a modern-sounding poem, isn't it? Oh, my God. This bloke has just been such a pain, and she doesn't fancy him. He fancies her, but is doing it in that like rubbish way that all us men have done. And, and her, the, her reply is so modern. I'll just read a, a, a little bit of it. You know I never loved you, John. No fault of mine made me your toast. Why would you haunt me with a face as wan as shows an hour old ghost? I dare say Meg or Mole would take pity on you if you'd ask. And pray don't remain single for my sake, who can't perform that task. I have no heart? Perhaps I have not. But then you're mad to take offence that I don't give you what I have not got. Use your common sense. Let bygones be bygones. Don't call me false, who owed not to be true. I'd rather answer no to 50 Johns than answer yes to you. Isn't that brilliant and horrible? <laughs> she really puts him in his place, doesn't she? Absolutely. And what's so great about it, my female students often end up crying, laughing, saying I had no idea that people wrote like that back then. Yeah. But she did, and she let John know, didn't she? They're wonderful, aren't they? Those literary moments when you think, I didn't know people wrote like that in those days. I love it. She's just basically saying, John, get in the bin. Don't bother me. She even offers to be his friend. And at the end of the poem, you think, yeah, right, Christina. You'd rather die, wouldn't you? Definitely knew what sexiness and the erotic was. So it's really interesting that we see her work being taken in that direction. <laughs> Goblin Market, you'll love this, was chosen as one of the poems by Playboy, that they read as part of their major erotic series. Oh, that's so cool. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been spinning in a grave over that one, wouldn't she? Yeah, I, I, I love Goblin Market. I love the fact that it's about these, these two innocent young girls who are threatened by goblins, but are they really goblins? I, I also like the fact that her brother Dante, who was almost like the opposite of her, he really championed it, didn't he? Oh, he did. He got John Ruskin involved with all of it. But he wasn't always helpful, Tony. He was supposed to do the illustrations, and he did do the illustrations, but then he was incredibly late. So it meant that she couldn't publish her volume of poetry over the Christmas when you'd have got big Christmas sales, and instead she has to publish it at the start of the year after. 
Everybody knows you have to get your stuff out for Christmas. Infuriating that must have been. But having said that, I have read that he not only did the drawings, but he did the binding. He did the whole kind of design. He created the package. And that, that, that was terribly influential, not only on subsequent children's books, but just on book publishing generally. Oh, that's completely true. He did a fantastic job with all of that. And he really really wanted this to do well. So thank God for Dante in that way. He did a good job with that. You're listening to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, bringing you a Christmas treat, my reading of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market. If you're enjoying this episode, please do share, review and follow us to spread the goblin-y love this Christmas. Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry. Come buy our orchard fruits, come buy, come buy. Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom down-cheeked peaches, swart-headed mulberries, wild free-born cranberries, crabapples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricot strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather, morns that pass by, fair eaves that fly. Come buy, come buy our grapes fresh from the vine, pomegranates full and fine, dates and sharp pulleses, rare pears and green gauges, damsons and bilberries, taste them and try, currants and gooseberries, bright fire like barberries, figs fill your mouth, citrons from the south, sweet to tongue and sound to eye, come by, come by. Evening by evening, among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear, Lizzie veiled her blushes, crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping eyes and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips. Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men, we must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, called the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Oh! Oh, cried Lizzie. Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen tramp little men. One hauls a basket, one bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow, whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruits bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, no, no. Their offers should not charm us. Their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes and ran. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one trapped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail, one like a wombat, proud, obtuse and furry, one like a rattle, tumbled, hurry, scurry. She heard a voice like voice of doves cooing all together. They sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. Backwards up the mossy glen turned and trooped the goblin men with their shrill repeated cry, Come back! 
I? When they reached where Laura was, they stood stock still upon the moss, leering at each other, brother with queer brother, signalling each other, brother with sly brother. One set his basket down, one reared his plate, one began to weave a crown of tendrils, leaves, and rough nuts brown. Men sell not such in any town. One heaved the golden weight of dish and fruit to offer her. Come by, come by, was still their cry. Laura stared but did not stir, longed but had no money. The whisk-tailed merchant bade her taste in tones as smooth as honey. The cat-face purred, the rat-face spoke a word of welcome, and the snail-paced even was heard. One parrot voice and jolly cried, Pretty goblin, still for pretty Polly. One whistled like a bird, but sweet. Tooth Laura spoke in haste. Good folk, I have no coin to take with a purloin. I have no copper in my purse. I have no silver either. And all my gold is on the furs that shakes in windy weather above the rusty heather. You have much gold upon your head, they answered all together. Buy from us with a golden curl. She clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl. Then sucked their fruit globes fair or red. Sweeter than honey from the rock, stronger than man rejoicing wine, clearer than water flowed that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away, but gathered up one kernel stone, and knew not was it night or day as she turned home alone alone. Lizzie met her at the gate, full of wise upbraidings. Dear, you should not stay so late. Twilight is not good for maidens. Should not loiter in the glen in the haunts of goblin men. Do you not remember Jeanie? How she met them in the moonlight, took their gifts, both choice and many, ate their fruits and wore their flowers, plucked from bowers, where summer ripens at all hours. But ever in the moonlight she pined and pined away. She sought them by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled and grew grey, then fell with the first snow, while to this day no grass will grow where she lies low. I planted daisies there a year ago that never blow. You should not loiter so. Nay, hush, said Laura. Nay, hush, my sister. I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more, and kissed her. Have done with sorrow. I will bring you plums tomorrow, fresh on their mother twigs. Cherries worth getting. You cannot think what figs my teeth have met in, what melons I see cold piled on a dish of gold, too huge for me to hold, what peaches with a velvet nap, pellucid grapes without one seed. Odorous indeed must be the mead whereon they grow, and pure the wave they drink with lilies at the brink, and sugar sweet their sap. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down in their curtained bed, like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes of new-fallen snow, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang to them lullaby, lumbering owls forbore to fly, not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest, cheek to cheek and breast to breast, locked together in one nest. 
early in the morning, when the first cock crowed his warning, neat like bees as sweet and busy, Laura rose with Lizzie, fetched in honey, milked the cows, aired and set to right the house, kneaded cakes of whitest wheat, cakes for dainty mouths to eat, next churned butter, whipped up cream, fed their poultry, sat and sewed, talked as modest maidens should, Lizzie with an open heart, Laura in an absent dream, one content, one sick in part, one warbling for the mere bright day's delight, one longing for the night. At length slow evening came. They went with pitchers to the reedy brook. Lizzie was most placid in her look. Laura most like a leaping flame. They drew the gurgling water from its deep. Lizzie plucked purple and rich golden flags. Then turning homeward said, The sunset flushes those furthest loftiest crags. Come, Laura, not another maiden lags. No willful squirrel wags. The beasts and birds are fast asleep. But Laura loitered still among the rushes and said the bank was steep and said the hour was early still, the dew not fallen, the wind not chill, listening ever but not catching the customary cry, come by, come by, with its iterated jingle of sugar-baited words, not for all her watching, once discerning even one goblin, racing, whisking, tumbling, hobbling, let alone the herds that used to tramp along the glen, in groups or single of brisk fruit merchant men. Till Lizzie urged, Oh, Laura, come! I hear the fruit call, but I dare not look. You should not loiter longer at this brook. Come with me home. The stars rise, the moon bends her arc, each glowworm winks her spark. Let us get home before the night grows dark, for clouds may gather, though this is summer weather. Put out the lights and drench us through. Then if we lost our way, what should we do? Laura turned cold as stone to find her sister heard that cry alone, that goblin cry, Come by our fruits, come by. Must she then buy no more such dainty fruit? Must she no more such succus pasture find? Gone deaf and blind, her tree of life drooped from the root. She said not one word in her heart's sore ache, but peering through the dimness, naught discerning, trudged home, her pitcher dripping all the way. So crept to bed and lay silent till Lizzie slept, then sat up in a passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for balked desire and wept as if her heart would break. Day after day, night after night, Laura kept watch in vain. In sullen silence of exceeding pain, she never caught again the goblin cry, Come by, come by. She never spied the goblin men hawking their fruits along the glen. But when the noon waxed bright, her hair grew thin and grey. She dwindled as the fair full moon doth turn to swift decay and burn her fire away. One day, remembering her kernel stone, she set it by a wall that faced the south, dewed it with tears, hoped for a root, watched for a waxing shoot, but there came none. It never saw the sun, it never felt the trickling moisture run, while with sunk eyes and faded mouth she dreamt of melons as a traveller sees false waves in desert drought, with shade of leaf-crowned trees, and burns the thirstier in the sandful breeze. She no more swept the house, tended the fowls or cows, fetched honey, kneaded cakes of wheat, bought water from the brook, but sat listless in the chimney nook and would not eat. 
Tender Lizzie could not bear to watch her sister's cankerous care, yet not to share. She night and morning caught the goblin's cry, Come by our orchard fruit, come by, come by. Beside the brook along the glen she heard the tramp of goblin men, the yoke and stir poor Laura could not hear, longed to buy fruit to comfort her, but feared to pay too dear. She thought of Jeanie in her grave, who should have been a bride, but who for joys brides hoped to have, fell sick and died in her gay prime, in earliest winter time, with the first glazing rhyme with the first snowfall of crisp winter time till Laura dwindling seemed knocking at death's door then Lizzie weighed no more better and worse but put a silver penny in her purse kissed Laura crossed the heath with clumps of furs at twilight halted by the brook and for the first time in her life began to listen and look laughed every goblin when they spied her peeping came towards her hobbling flying running leaping puffing and blowing chuckling clapping crowing clacking and gobbling mopping and mowing full of airs and graces pulling wry faces demure grimaces cat like and rat like rattle and wombat like snail paced in a hurry parrot voiced and whistler helter skelter hurry scurry chattering like magpies fluttering like pigeons gliding like fishes hugged her and kissed her squeezed and caressed her stretched up their dishes, panniers and plates. Look at our apples, russet and done. Pop at our cherries, bite at our peaches, citrons and dates. Grapes for the asking, pears red with basking out in the sun. Plums on their twigs, pluck them and suck them, pomegranates, figs. Good folks, said Lizzie, mindful of Jeanie, give me much and many. Held out her apron, tossed them her penny. Nay, take a seat with us, honour and eat with us, they answered, grinning. Our feast is but beginning. Night yet is early, warm and dew pearly, wakeful and starry. Such fruits as these no man can carry. Half their bloom would fly, half their dew would dry, half their flavour would pass by. Sit down and feast with us, be welcome guest with us. "'Cheer you and rest with us.' "'Thank you,' said Lizzie, "'but one waits at home alone for me. "'So without further parleying, "'if you will not sell me any of your fruits "'through much and many, "'give me back my silver penny I tossed you for a fee.' They began to scratch their pates, no longer wagging, purring, but visibly demurring, grunting and snarling. One called her proud, cross-grained, uncivil. Their tones waxed loud. Their looks were evil. Lashing their tails, they trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her, clawed with their nails, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking, tore her gown and soiled her stocking, twitched her hair out by the roots, stamped upon her tender feet, held her hands and squeezed their fruits against her mouth to make her eat. White and golden Lizzie stood like a lily in a flood, like a rock of blue-veined stone, lashed by tides obstreperously, like a beacon left alone in a hoary, roaring sea, sending up a golden fire, like a fruit-crowned orange tree, white with blossoms honey-sweet, sore beset by wasp and bee, like a royal virgin town, topped with gilded dome and spire, close beleaguered by a fleet, mad to tug her standard down. One may lead a horse to water, twenty 
cannot make him drink. Though the goblins cuffed and caught her, coaxed and fought her, bullied and besought her, scratched her, pinched her black as ink, kicked and knocked her, mauled and mocked her, Lizzie uttered not a word, would not open lip from lip lest they should cram a mouthful in, but laughed in heart to feel the drip of juice that syruped all her face and lodged in dimples of her chin and streaked her neck which quaked like curd. At last the evil people, worn out by her resistance, flung back her penny, kicked their fruit along whichever road they took, not leaving root or stone or shoot. Some writhed into the ground, some dived into the brook with ring and ripple, some scudded on the gale without a sound, some vanished in the distance. In a smart ache, tingle, Lizzie went her way, knew not was it night or day, sprang up the bank, tore through the furs, threaded corpse and dingle, and heard her penny jingle bouncing in her purse, its bounce was music to her ear, she ran and ran as if she feared some goblin man, dogged her with jibe or curse or something worse, but not one goblin scurried after, nor was she pricked by fear, the kind heart made her windy paste, that urged her home quite out of breath with haste and inward laughter. She cried, Laura, up the garden, did you miss me? Come and kiss me, never mind my bruises, hug me, kiss me, suck my juices, squeezed from goblin fruits for you, goblin pulp and goblin dew, eat me, drink me, love me, Laura, make much of me, for your sake I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchant men. Laura started from her chair, flung her arms up in the air, clutched her hair. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden? Must your light like mine be hidden, your young life like mine be wasted, undone in mine undoing and ruined in my ruin, thirsty, cankered, goblin-ridden? She clung upon her sister, kissed and kissed and kissed her. Tears once again refreshed her shrunken eyes, dropping like rain after long sultry drought shaking with anguish fear and pain she kissed and kissed her with a hungry mouth her lips began to scorch that juice was wormwood to her tongue she loathed the feast writhing as one possessed she leapt and sung rent all her robe and wrung her hands in lamentable haste and beat her breast her locks streamed like the torch borne by a racer at full speed or like the mane of horses in their flight or like an eagle when she stems the light straight toward the sun or like a cage thing freed or like a flying flag when an arm is run. Swift fire spread through her veins, knocked at her heart, met the fire smouldering there and overbore its lesser flame. She gorged on bitterness without a name. Ah, fool, to choose such part of soul-consuming care. Sense failed in the mortal strife, like the watchtower of a town which an earthquake shatters down, like a lightning-stricken mast, like a wind-uprooted tree spun about, like a foam-topped water spout cast down headlong in the sea. She fell at last. Pleasure passed and anguish passed. Is it death or is it life? Life out of death. That night long Lizzie watched by her, counted her pulses flagging stir, felt for her breath, held water to her lips and cooled her face with tears and fanning leaves. But when the first birds chirped about their eaves and early reapers plodded to the place of golden sheaves, 
and dew-wet grass bowed in the morning wind so brisk to pass, and new buds with new day opened of cup-like lilies on the stream. Laura awoke as from a dream, laughed in the innocent old way, hugged Lizzie but not twice or thrice. Her gleaming locks showed not one thread of grey. Her breath was sweet as May, and light danced in her eyes. Days, weeks, months, years afterwards, when both were wives with children of their own, their mother hearts beset with fears, their lives bound up in tender lives. Laura would call the little ones and tell them of her early prime, those pleasant days long gone of not returning time. Would talk about the haunted glen, the wicked, quaint fruit merchant men, their fruits like honey to the throat but poison in the blood. Men sell not such in any town. Would tell them how her sister stood in deadly peril to do her good and win the fiery antidote. Then, joining hands to little hands, would bid them cling together. For there is no friend like a sister in calm or stormy weather to cheer one on the tedious way, to fetch one if one goes astray, to lift one if one totters down, to strengthen while one stands. Hi, this is Tony Robinson, bringing you my cunning cast Christmas episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating or review. And do take a look at our back catalogue. It's a veritable Christmas stocking of goodies for you to enjoy. Jam-packed with 12 episodes on everything from What Did the Past Smell Like to The National Census. And don't miss my fantastically rude chat with an old friend, the legend that is Miriam Margulies. I'm sure you'll find something you like, so get stuck in. So that was Goblin Market, written by Christina Rossetti. And I'm here with Madeline Callahan, who lectures in Romantic Literature at the University of Sheffield, to discuss more about it. So it's about two young women, kind of on the verge of adolescence, who are tempted and fall, but hey, everything turns out all right for them in the end. In a way, they've been informed by that experience. What was going on there? What was going on in Christina's mind? You expect, don't you, with some Victorian tale, it's going to be boringly and the one who errs is finished forever. But in fact, Laura gets to be saved because of her sister. I think this is because of her work with former sex workers. That is extraordinary, isn't it? Shock horror. This wonderful Victorian woman was actually working with former sex workers when she wrote this wonderful poem. How did that happen? Why was she doing it? So she goes off to Highgate to the Mary Magdalene home for the Asian women. And can you imagine these girls are aged between 16 and 24 years old. And Christina was known as Sister Christina when she worked there. And she was working alongside these women to help them to get over the past and to become active and happy members of society. They believed totally that these women could be and would be redeemed. And, and were they, do we know? Now, this is the fun bit. I'm not sure what became of them, but that she's writing about fruit in Goblin Market is so important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, 
the warden at Mary Magdalene home, he used to talk about the women in terms of the apple trees nearby. So he used to talk about the way they would act when tempted with apples. So you have this idea of the forbidden fruit at these Mary Magdalene homes. And Christina must have known this. And she is desperate to see that there is a future. So instead of us being naturally pessimistic or cynical, Christina shows us, look, this can happen and it does happen. I don't know if you felt this, Tony, when you were reading it out, but you don't have a sense of Laura being bad or worse than Lizzie at the end of the poem. Did you feel like that? Absolute equality, it felt like, between the women. It did feel like two sisters of my age, you know, they meet together, regardless of what's happened during the course of their lives. There's just a kind of equality about the fact that they've thus survived. They, they're both still together. They're both still still sisters after all this time and after all these experiences. That's the vibe that I get off the, the, the last few stanzas of that poem. I've got the same feeling about it, that we don't have like, Lizzie's so wonderful, Laura's so awful, Laura spends the rest of her life atoning for this sin. Instead, as you say, they feel like equals. They're both young women, one takes one road, one takes the other one. But it's okay for to be that one fell and one was heroic. But there's a further irony, isn't there? Which is that while Christina was writing this, her brother Dante was on the pull all the time. <laughs> I think that's a nice way of putting it. He was getting involved with sex workers and let's just say his plan was not to redeem them from that work. I can imagine Christina was not very impressed about this. So you've got really opposing views. Dante is saying, let us live. Let's have fun and excitement and sex. And Christina saying, let's stop this happening and maybe we could work on a major social problem. Believe it or not, we know there were 9,000 prostitutes working in London in the Victorian period and 3,000 of them on the West End. So Dante wasn't just seeing them around, he was actively going out there to try and find more. The poem was a hit, wasn't it? It was a critical hit. This is the interesting thing. Everybody in all of the journals thought that Christina was brilliant and this collection was inspired, especially Goblin Market compared to all the other poems. But she didn't get the sales that you'd have expected from somebody so beloved by the critics. I'm sure if you've got any novelists listening in, they'll say, yes, we know. But that's how it works, and that's what happened to her. So Dante is looking at Christina and saying, write something else, do something else. So also, Christina's work was greeted by a lot of people talking about it as a fun fantasy for children of all ages kind of reviews. So they were good, but there was a strong sense that this was the sort of thing that women might write. And that, I think, would have very slightly annoyed her that she was being put as the best of the girls rather than quite being hailed as the new Tennyson, maybe. Remember, she was being thought about for Poet Laureate, but because she was a woman, she wasn't asked. I didn't know that. She was seriously thought about as Poet Laureate? Yeah, and Charles Dodgson, who was Lewis Carroll, as we now know him, he was inspired to write Alice's Adventures in Wonderland because of Goblin Market. And he said, she's the obvious choice. But he knew, as well as he did, that at the time, being a woman meant no thank you, John, or no thank you, Christina, really. And she was not going to get chosen. So as much as the critics loved it, she was not the one who got picked. And that was a real shame for her. Do you think looking back, 
as it were, to the the early 20th century, after the pre-Raphaelites had disappeared. Do you think they had much influence? I do. I think that Oscar Wilde is clearly inspired by them, an arts for art's sake kind of a movement. And I think now when we look at arts and crafts houses, when we look at all the tableware that we enjoy, when we look at the kind of aesthetic paintings of women that have continued, there has to be a link here. And Christina Rossetti was such an inspiration for many female writers. So there's the great Elizabeth Bishop, who follows up on this, Stevie Smith, for example. These artists look at Christina Rossetti and say, yes, I want to write great art that excites everybody, inspires them, and shows that you can do great things with musicality. So I think that there's an underrated importance to what has been achieved here. The way you read it, how could it be a dated period piece (laughs) when we can hear the excitement of those lines? Yeah. When you think about her, I just want people not to think about her as a boring Victorian lady in crinolines that doesn't care about the real world. But she's somebody that is obsessed with temptation, in sexuality, in heroism, in the fact that we get second chances in our lives. And I love that she doesn't give in to boring morality. She makes it exciting for all of us to think again. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on X at Tony Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news on X and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my Cunning Cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald, and it's a Zinc Media production. Stay tuned, because we'll be back in the new year with a brand new series. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.